Hello, and welcome to Big Fish in the Talent Pool with your host, Aaron Peterson, partner and global talent acquisition consultant with People Results. In each episode, Aaron interviews a corporate head of talent acquisition to shine a light on how they got there, what keeps them up at night, and their views on all the hot topics in TA today. There's nothing Erin is afraid to ask because she's been there. Now here's your host, Erin Peterson. Hi, Big Fish listeners, and welcome to episode 28 on the topic of agile hiring during the pandemic. This is according to three big fish in the RPO world, Corey Cruz, the president of Orion Novotis, John Hess, who's an SVP with Advanced RPO, and Jason Crumweedy, SVP with Broadleaf Results. In this episode, you'll get to listen into our conversation during our session at RPOCon 2020, which, by the way, thanks to Executive Director Lamise Abarama and her team, ran a fantastic conference this year. You can actually get access to all the content at rpoassociation.org and then click on the green button at the top right of the site called RPO Virtual Conference. But I digress. Back to the podcast. With these three RPO leaders, I dive deep into how their firms have struggled, pivoted, and become more nimble this year to serve their clients' changing needs. But don't worry, it's not a commercial for their respective RPOs. That's not how I roll with the guests on this podcast. Rather, it's an honest and fun conversation on how the challenges of this crazy year have forced us to rethink the way things are done and applying agile methodology where possible. I think you'll enjoy it and uh, maybe gain some practical ideas that you can apply in your world. But before that, a quick reminder about our sponsor, ATAP, the professional association for those who are serious about growing their TA career and their network. In fact, they're intentionally building a truly global network of TA professionals at ATAP and providing great resources that we can all benefit from. You can find more information out about them and about their membership at atapglobal.org. That's A-T-A-P-G-L-O-B-A-L dot O-R-G. And now on to agile hiring with the roller coaster of demand for talent. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Agile Hiring and Dealing with the Roller Coaster of Demand for Talent in RPOA Con 2020. We're really glad to be with you today. My name is Erin Peterson, and I have the pleasure of moderating this panel of experts regarding how they are handling RPO in an agile way in these very interesting times. I'm going to have them introduce themselves as well and uh, tell us they are, what they do, and maybe just one interesting factoid that not very many people know about them. Corey, is it okay if I start with you? Absolutely. Erin, thank you. And I'm glad to be here. I'm Corey Cruz. I am president of Orion Talents RPO business. I'm in Austin, Texas. I've been here since 1994. I'm a Southern California guy that uh, got here in the, with the early wave of uh, kind of the the tech uh, boom here. Um, raised my kids here, three grown children. And uh, one thing that you probably wouldn't know about me is that when I'm not in front of the computer doing webinars or delivering for our clients. Um, I spend my time going downhill on my mountain bike as fast as I can. Oh, fun. Love it. Okay. I can picture that. Sounds great. Uh, John, how about you next? Hello, I'm John Hess. I'm vice president with Advanced RPO. I've been in the industry, I guess, talent acquisition. got into it about 25, 26 years ago and have not left since. So (laughs) made a career out of it. 
uh, working both on the corporate side and the RPO side, so I have experience on both sides of the fence. I actually am a collector of vintage sports memorabilia, so I'm not sure how many people know that. Interesting. Okay, on a future webinar, we want to see a few pieces. Yeah. <laughs> and Jason. Oh, hi, Aaron. Jason Crumwitty here. Uh, great to see everybody again and excited to talk about uh, the roller coaster that we've been experiencing for the past uh, six months or so. I'm the uh, Senior Vice President of Client Delivery for Broadleaf Results. So I oversee all of client delivery. I'm based in Nashville, Tennessee. So similar to Aaron and Corey, I've got lots of music in our in our city that's, that's fun, to, uh, uh, fun to go around and, and honky talk. I'm going to go with my first job is something people don't know. I, when I was a teenager, I was a, I was a fry guy, uh, one of the best fry guys at, at uh, McDonald's. So. All right. Where great careers start, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And I'll finish it up. I'm Erin Peterson with People Results. I'm a global talent acquisition consultant and RPO advisor. And I have been fortunate to be a global recruiting leader for organizations like Accenture, Aon, and Amazon. Now I get to deploy that experience, battle scars, I call it sometimes, for my clients uh, and help them do what they do better. Something maybe not a lot of people know about me is that I married my college sweetheart 35 years ago. And together, he and I and our kids, I guess, at before they left home, moved 16 times. So an average of once every two years. So we're agile, I guess you could say, have a wanderlust. And uh, that includes a move to Europe and back when I was with Accenture. So, well, enough about me. We are going to talk about agile hiring, not only how RPO can be an agile response to an organization's hiring needs, but how have RPO organizations become agile as a result of the roller coaster of 2020? And before we get started, I just want to ground us all in what would be considered the agile manifesto. If you've done any studying of agile methodology, you know that there's really kind of three tenets, and they are individuals and interactions over process and tools. Second one is working software over comprehensive documentation. And the third is customer collaboration over contract negotiation. So RPO has really been built to satisfy a need in some cases for high volume, in other cases, all level of recruiting. And in order to do that in a structured way, they have typically managed that through processes and tools, comprehensive documentation, and contract negotiation. And yet Agile really calls for turning that on its head. So our panelists here are going to talk to us about that overused term Agile and how they in their businesses have been calling upon the methodology for Agile to serve their clients in new ways. Jason. Since we ended with you on the introductions, I'll start with you on the questions. How would you say your organization has adapted to the changes in demand that 2020 has called for? And do you have any examples of agile methodology applied to the work you do? Yeah, sure. And I think I think most of us, most companies, uh, actually, I'd say all companies have been had to be agile over the past six months and adapt their businesses to a new normal. I, I think we're start, starting to see, at least in our business, some stabilizing with our clients, you know, spiking up and down. But I think foremost is with Agile, I think we, we're not a software development company, so we, we're services provider. So I, I think I probably subscribe more to the 
the Webster definition of agile, just the ability to be quick and nimble, um, easy to work with for our clients. And I think we've done that exceptionally well with the, with our clients. So a slight different pivot from, from the de definition um, that you mentioned, but I think the tenets are, 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 are spot on. Like you said, the, the interactions that we have with our clients, the ability to uh, uh, adapt to a new process or processes, especially with in-person interviewing, essentially just evaporating and going away. Many of our clients were essential businesses, so we had to adapt to a new normal so those essential businesses could continue to operate. I think where we adopted, uh, adapted most quickly in, in leveraging Agile was, um, and I think many clients have already done this, but the use of of video interviewing as part of the process. And that's probably the second most overused term is that we've all used interviewing, video interviewing to make hiring decisions. But I think where I've seen the most interesting and, and advised our clients on this opportunity is how recruiters can really be empowered to make hiring decisions using video interviewing. And we've done that with one of our large retail clients across the United States. So which at one point it was a standard high volume hourly process that would go in, uh, candidates would go in and see uh, area managers and regional managers and get hired that way, where the recruiter was really the facilitator of that process. Uh, and then dealing it afterwards on the back end of onboarding, um, they really were the recommender and the decision maker. So the adaption of the process. So essentially taking that hiring leader out of the process and putting trust in the recruiter to use their judgment um, and make decisions on who is going to be best suited for that. And so I think that agile switch in terms of process, um, the recruiter was really enabled to make that change and make hiring decisions for that hiring leader. And I think what's been interesting, especially in this retail example, is that hiring managers like to have control of the process and make those decisions. And granted, I'm taking it through a, a high volume lens which is, it, that's much higher to, harder to do with corporate jobs. But we've seen our recruiters really adopt and be empowered to make those decisions and make really good decisions on behalf of their hiring leaders. So I think, okay. I think about agile, that's kind of where I take it from. So it sounds like changes in roles and people being able to pivot and do things that they weren't doing previously, maybe take on different responsibilities and also clients who are more open to tech solutions than maybe they previously were just on the basis of you know, necessity is the mother of invention, that sort of thing. Okay, thank you. Corey, what would you say would be your examples of agility in, in adapting? This situation that we've been in over the last several months has been very unique to, to all of us. We've encountered ups and downs across the board, you know, initially, and, and we very much subscribe to the fact that if your team's and your company are not healthy, your customers can't be healthy. So utilizing the agile methodology, we focused immediately on those things that will, would sharpen our offering and ultimately deliver more value to our clients. And this goes from our business development process all the way through onboarding and, and helping our clients grow. Aligning our tactical goals with ultimate or our tactical actions with our strategic goals and doing it in an, in a very agile way where we had teams that were working in pods to create um, an actionable item that can be measured and quickly deployed was critical for us. And that was um, ultimately rolling into what we call our key account management methodology, which subscribes to the agile methodology. And there, 
it identifies and it removes any roadblocks or inefficiencies on the front end while allowing for a swift operation along the way. We do also use the Kanban methodology, very simply of prioritizing and moving tasks from the left to to the right as they progress or they're completed. And by doing that, you know, higher level of accountability, higher level of visibility. As an outsource provider, we all know it's not them and us. It has to be us. We're in this together. It's just, there's just an us. So we have, and I'll give you an example. We have a, a large client that we brought on. Uh, they're in the logistics business and a lot of hires, coast to coast, North America, Canada. The whole project is more about ready, fire, aim than it is about taking a implementation plan and diligently walking through each item of that. So the way that we did it and and we're in the implementation and kind of the, you know, we're firing right now, but we're still implementing. We looked at those areas that would get us the biggest lift. We prioritized, we made sure that everybody was in line with what we're going to do now and what we're going to do later along the way with a, a fine line in a bias for action. And action, you know, definitely speaks louder than process when it comes to delivering results with this client. And so as an outsource provider, we have to focus on the end game. And that is hires that are trained in their seat, properly motivated at any given time. Hmm. Interesting. So it sounds like maybe a little bit of a comfort with chaos yes. as you implement and deliver simultaneously. You, you have to be all right with a, a bit of um, discontrol. I guess. All right. Very interesting. John, what would you say would be some examples of how your organization has become agile in um, response to 2020? In addition to Jason and Corey, what they had mentioned, I think you, you had mentioned with the Agile Manifesto, the key values with that. One of them was individuals' interactions over the process and tools, I believe you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think about that, and, and you know, we're, we, we've gone into this pandemic, and I think a lot of companies, it's very uncertain for companies out there what the next steps are going to be here, what's going to be around the corner. And it's really thrown a lot of organizations into more of a virtual world where people are working remotely and they're having to, having to do interviews virtually and they're having to do onboarding boarding virtually. Not all companies, but a lot of companies are having to go through that right now. And when we kind of work with our clients, we really are leveraging many, much of the technology that's out there right now, texting, auto scheduling, video interviewing, so forth. And so virtual onboarding and all that. I think what's really important with that and where companies and statistics are showing this, that you can sometimes move too far to that side, to the technological side, and you start to lose that experience with the candidates and the hiring managers as well. And what we try to do is weave into that. You, you mentioned that interaction earlier versus just over tools that are being used as well. And ensuring that we're actually within that recruitment process, making sure we have those touch points with the candidates and the hiring managers, because it's very easy, especially right now, to just send emails out, to just set up virtual conversation, whatever it might be, you know, just do everything virtually. Um, and, and even you start to see a lot of just texting and emailing and that type of thing. So I think really when I think of what you just mentioned earlier, that's something we're really trying to do with our clients. And what we're seeing happen with that is when we're adding in that human element to it, ensuring that there's that touch point in there with that, it's actually improving our offer acceptance rates for both you know, more of the entry-level positions because the statistic rate shows that even the 20-somethings and 30-somethings, while they like the ease of the technology and the ease of a lot of things we talked about, they still like that interaction at certain points within this process. So we found that kind of at all levels, whether it be the high volume or the 
more entry level roles or even the more senior level roles, that that's really important to ensure that you actually have that interaction with the candidates and not just go fully technological. Okay. Wow. So uh, more personal touch, more, more time spent working the phones, talking to people, humanizing the process. Is that what I'm hearing? Balancing it. Yeah. Leveraging the technology because that's a yeah. great thing and you can really use it. But that's correct. Love it. Okay. Just kind of continuing on this uh, vein a little bit. So is anybody taking a page out of software development's book? Things like sprints, daily standups, road mapping the delivery cycles, prototyping new ideas to fail fast versus longer term pilots. Who, who's Who's got an example of that? We, we do use bits and pieces of the the agile software development methodology mm-hmm. in that very quick, concise, driven meetings with the applicable group of folks, both on our company side and our client side, to ensure that everybody is still aligned and on track. If there's any, we, we also utilize meetings in incident reports that are almost real time. So, you know, utilizing chat functionality and things like that, there should, there should never be a, um, a hitch in communication between client and, and company um, or client and us. And, and that goes both ways. Additionally, you know, the other things that we do are, you know, absolutely live dashboards to where customer has immediate insights into into progress or lack of progress or trouble areas that are recognized earlier on. So chat functionality, meaning like Slack? Yeah, co- collaboration. Trello, other Tre- collaboration tools? Mm-hmm. All sorts of collaboration tools. Mm-hmm. Trello, you know, the both Microsoft and Google platforms have it built in, you know. Right. So yeah. use them. All right. Love it. And uh, so, so I have another question, unless anybody else wants to jump in on that s- software methodology. Okay. Workforce planning. It's the holy grail, right? Most companies don't do it or don't do it very well, but everybody knows they should do it. So I'm just curious, in the age of COVID, in the in the time when some corporate teams have had maybe a little bit more time to be able to think about the long-term stuff, are you seeing the uh, workforce planning chops in- increase at all among your clients, or are you increasing your ability to serve clients with the workforce planning capability? I'm seeing that change, right? I mean, I think it's been a challenge. It's a challenge for organizations, I think, all the time. I mean, how do you get business and HR and talent acquisition all be communicating about what the workforce planning and what the the workforce needs are? Um, I do think going into this pandemic and through 2020, it's really forced companies to address that more directly. I've seen that, you know, where companies, I, I think, where I think I think with this pandemic, because of this, you know, everybody's looking very they have a lot of sensitivity towards the hiring and the cost of it and the lack of you know having individuals in the right spots at the right time. And I just really see a heightened alertness, a heightened, heightened focus on that at this time, where I, I do see it starting to elevate, especially within the mid small to mid-sized companies, where now it's starting to look and starting to become more and more HR and talent acquisitions becoming elevated within the organizations to be more of those conversations on the front end of the planning around the business planning and the workforce plan that goes together with that versus more of a reactionary mode. It's really more of a proactive process of partnering with them kind of on the front end of that versus waiting, you know, kind of on the back end of it. Because a lot of times in our position, a lot of times we're finding out sometimes it can be a month or two after they actually knew about it, but it didn't always get communicated to us. So the planning that could have taken place and what yeah. we could have done could have been much different, you know, much better. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think, I, I, Aaron, I don't know if, if 
if workforce planning has gotten much better, I think I think it was Mercer had a report, I don't know, a couple of years back that they surveyed, you know, what's fourth fortune one thousand clients, and I think sixty to sixty-five percent of them rated them their workforce planning function is average or below average. And I, I don't know if that's gotten much better. Um, what I do know there's there's a lot more controls in place. So we're when we're, when we're talking to and collaborating with our clients about what's real, a heightened sense of awareness of real jobs and what's necessary and really what's critical to their organization. And I think they're, I mean, I think the value proposition is of, of an RPO solution, of a, of a partnership, especially with talent acquisition leaders, has never been more relevant than it is today. I know one of my clients, when we were talking, is wrapping up a conversation on you know, a, a big spreadsheet about what they want to what they want us to work on, and she said it's it's a lot like whack a mole when I look at our partnership and workforce planning because across the enterprise there's different there's different pockets that spike up that really need extra time and attention, and some of it was pay rate issues. They were just not paying enough. You know, compared that to the the federal government subsidies, and it was it was hard for them to. To, to compete against the federal government in terms of pay, uh, uh, you know, vis-a-vis candidates or potential employees sitting on the sidelines and just taking the paycheck. So, um, yeah. you know, the ability to, to an RPO solution to storm troop into certain locations that were addressed, you know, that had specific workforce needs that were immediate and relevant and a paratroop in there and address those, those needs very quickly. And I saw that across several of our clients. Yeah. Interesting. Aaron, can I chime in here real quick? Mm -hmm. I would answer this question the same way I probably would have answered it 10 years ago. And that is we are seeing slow incremental progress towards more companies doing what you would call form formalized workforce planning. And this, you know, what I've seen is, is companies that weren't doing anything. Now they're at least laying it down on a spreadsheet and it's part of their business planning. And then those that were kind of in that bucket have moved to a more sophisticated workforce planning platform. The interesting thing is I don't see the question being asked enough. And, and it's a question that we should all be asking our clients. What happens if you don't get those hires? What happens if those jobs go vacant? What is the cost of the organization? Those are the kind of uh, conversations that we need to be having. And if I could maybe tag on that just a little bit there. So, Corey, I think that's a really good point because it is, it's almost, uh, we're talking about workforce planning, it's starting to shift, trying to shift the look, looking at talent acquisition from a cost and expense of the organization to a return on investment. And I think you look at some of the things that Corey mentioned, like it, it, Typically, you see time to fill, cost per hire, source of hire, so forth and so on. As far as metrics that are being measured, that's really important. It's important that that's being measured. But to start having those conversations with the leadership in an organization, to course, what are the number of key jobs unfilled? You know, what's the revenue per employee and how much is that costing you not to fill that job? What's the revenue per your top performers? Usually that's, according to a lot of studies, it's four times the value of what an average performer is. So really starting to change that mindset around this is not an expense. This is an investment in your organization. And what is that return on that investment to your organization? Starting to look at these different metrics that we're talking about, how many days, vacancy days and priority jobs, how long are they open? Those type of metrics. And I think really to start looking at those more than just the time to fill. Well, I like where this is going because that really is pointing out the case for RPO. If an organization needs a, a an agile solution so it's not just about unfilled roles and you know the cost of not having the right talent. It's also about costs that need to be borne by talent acquisition teams who frankly 
typically don't have a big budget, and yet they're barraged by TA tech vendors who are constantly wanting them to take a meeting and do a demo and figure out if they can plug in, you know, this particular technology to their stack. But at the end of the day, they just don't, they don't have the budget for it. So one of the ways to figure that out is to maybe partner with an RPO that has the technology. I'm just curious to know, you know, the build versus buy decision that some clients grapple with. So have you seen clients that are more inclined than before to partner with an RPO to get the technology that they couldn't afford to purchase on their own? I'm certainly seeing clients that when you talk, it's one of the levers of the value proposition of an RPO. And I think it's tied to innovation and talent acquisition's ability to innovate. Because to your point, like there's a lot of really cool technologies out there, AI, chat, lot, many different ways to innovate um, and engage not only with candidates, but, but to streamline the process. And I think larger organizations, when they want to buy the next shiny object that, let's say, is that HR tech, you know, they have to go through a budgeting process then a RFP and selection process, business justification for that particular tool, implementation, so on and so forth. And then finally, your commitment, which who knows what years from now, right? And you yeah. don't really know if it works and then how to integrate it into your overall process, which may be changing or, or different ATSs. And that amount of time to get that new tool into their, let's say, the TA function to try it out and then find out that eh, maybe it doesn't necessarily work as as what was put on the, the PowerPoint deck. Um, yeah, you don't I think- have the members to use it effectively. All of those different things are total cost of ownership, right? And I think with an RPO, Corey and John, they can almost rent innovation. Um, The ability for us to deploy tools really quickly um, and effectively. And one of my clients, we, you know, we test and learn and we fail fast, right? If it doesn't work, that's okay. Um, That's part of the value proposition. We looked at a new chat technology. You know what? It didn't work as planned, um, or didn't deliver the ROI that we would expect from something like this in the cost, but you're really able to do it on the back of your RPO. And we're one, we were able to deploy it really quickly, see if there's an ROI, whether it's candidates or actual hires and measure it effectively and kind of put it into a real life scenario and then report on it as well. And so the expectation that's built in, let's say, our, our QBRs and the clients is, Kind of what have you done for me lately in terms of innovation? And sometimes it could just be as simple as process innovations that we're doing quite frequently, but also what tools um, and new ideas are you bringing to the table? So, All right, good. So Corey and John, I'd love to get your perspective on that too. Um, Are you seeing an uptick in demand? Just people looking for the ability to innovate in the midst of renting innovation, I think Jason said. So are you finding people asking for innovation rented? I, I would, I mean, I'd maybe build off a little bit of what Corey said there as far as innovation technology. I think what's really important is anyone can buy the tools out there. Anybody can buy, you know, bring the technology and the innovative uh, tools that are out there. But how do you use them? It's how are you using them? How are you strategically leveraging all the tools you have to optimize those tools and really get the benefit out of them? And it, it surprises me at times when I'm, you know, it just happens. I mean, I, I have to watch what I say here, but it surprised me at times when I talk to organizations where they have these tools, but they're not really leveraging them. They're like, what do you actually do with them? So I think what's important with that is, and I think that's, you're talking about build versus buy. You can buy this. You can't necessarily buy the expertise and the experience. Good. Corey, what are you seeing? 
many more conversations over the past few months, you know, six months on uh, in and around technology. And, you know, whether it's in an RFP and there's much more banter around what technology do you bring? How would you hook in with us? Is it international? Is it multilinguistic? You know, all these types of things are, are becoming more prevalent. Definitely. I mean, you know, we've seen more interest for sure. And while many companies out there, both mid-sized and larger companies, have implemented in what I would call an uh, integrated HRIS system, like a Workday or something that has different modules, um, they're still struggling at optimizing the different pieces of that. Whether it's a you know the applicant tracking piece of it, or you know something that allows for the throughput of candidates, or communication, or branding, or marketing and that's where we fit in we know how to optimize those whether it's in and and we know what hooks into hris systems and what works together with it so i'll say this if i'm going to build a house i'm going to seek out as many experts as i can to give me advice on what kind of appliances i i should be putting in my house and and so on and so very very similar to that how are we going to operate our business in the most efficient way utilizing technology um, to help us get that done. Okay. Yeah. If I can add one thing, Aaron, because I think John and Corey hit on it, it's really around the know-how that an RPO can bring about executing on the technology and how, um, if we deployed it across 10 different clients, 10 plus clients, there's lots of you know learned experiences that we have and how to operationalize it. And I think all of those things outside of the technology and implementation really um, is, is, is where the rubber meets the road. Okay. So I guess what you're saying is it's all about the talent as well as the technology. So talent to be able to use it. Talent to execute. I agree. My husband will tell you, I say that all the time. Any news story you read about something that went well or poorly at a particular company, that's my answer. It's all about the talent, actually. It's all about the people that are executing or poorly executing whatever needed to be done. So um, good. We've got some chat going on here. Let me just take a look and see if there's a question we can pose to you experts. Uh, Joshua R says, shouldn't there be more of a workforce plan in place to hire high potential candidates that have a more diverse background rather than traditional candidates that may or may not tick all the boxes? So I think Josh is probably making the case for using our, you know, need to pivot here to make progress in areas that maybe we were able to ignore in the past or maybe clients uh, weren't as concerned about. So what would you say to that? Corey, you look like you're ready to answer. I, I'll, I don't mean to pick on you again. But. Yeah, no, v- uh, very good question. You know, y- you have to take into consideration, especially in a, a bustling economy, the talent may not be there that you're historically looking for, and you may need to shift or look at look at profiles that end up doing well within your organization and look at uh, peripheral skill sets that would map back into there. We have the advantage of having this big military piece to our company. Orion Talent is a big part of what we do is veteran hiring. And if you look at upskilling or you know companies looking to, to gain some some skill sets and some experiences on their team, you know, as an example, military is a, is a good way to go do that uh, because you get people trained and, and so on. And, and the same with looking at diverse candidate pools and, and then candidate pools that may not have been visited in the past, but 
can map very well into a job or a role and, and is historically high, higher performing. So you're not wrong, Corey, but I, let's go for specifics because, for example, I've been really impressed with some of the, the conferences that I've attended recently, seeing more information about technologies like SeekOut, Eightfold.ai, and others that are really giving access to sourcers in the area of diversity that they really haven't had before. It's been a sort of, you know, shooting in the dark before, and now they're able to actually be very specific about what they're looking for. Curious to know what technologies you think are the best ones out there for finding technology or for finding diversity. Our internal database. <laughs> oh, <laughs> good answer. Yeah. I mean, it's it, to me, I mean, it's always about opening up all the sourcing channels out there. I mean, that's what, drives the right talent, that's what drives diversity in the organization. So we work with many different organizations, associations, and different companies out there around that. But to me, it's really you know, not necessarily you know, going to this event or that event, that's important, but it's really ensuring opening up as many of these sourcing channels out there as possible to drive diversity in the organization with that. And I, I do know at the beginning of this, it's a really good question, because I remember at the beginning of this, back in March and April, when we were starting to enter into this 2020 year, there was an opportunity. We we talked about this in our We also talked to clients about this. There's an opportunity here in the marketplace to kind of remake your organization here. There's opportunities to do. I think we're really asking that question. So I think companies right now, because there's a lot of people being displaced. There's a lot of companies that are in transition. There are people who are looking, you know, looking because who knows what status their company's in right now. So I think it's a great opportunity. We're really trying to capitalize on that. But I think it's a really good question. Actually, I think now's a good time for companies to be looking at yes, that. Yes, indeed. Great question. Uh, and Timothy P comments, having the tools without leveraging them is like squashing water. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Definitely going to use that in the future. Well done, Timothy P. All right. What would you say then if you've got potentially new people, new organizations that are thinking about RPO that maybe in times past would have not been willing to? Does that mean that pricing changes? And what I'm after here is there's more demand. Do you get to be more selective about who you grab as a client? Or if there is more supply out there in terms of candidates, that your buyers are viewing the service you provide as being, you know, overpriced. So what, what what's happening with contracts and pricing as you consider new clients and as new clients consider you? Aaron, before I jump into contracts and pricing, I, I think it's a really good question. I think strategically talent acquisition, what I'm seeing is talent acquisition leaders are looking at their own function, thinking like business leaders, and do I have to rebuild my team that potentially was furloughed six months ago because of you know hiring demand went down significantly? So I think before going into contracts and, and pricing, thinking about what the business case is and strategically, you know, is an RPO a good solution for part of my business and what parts of the business are going to be? Um, so kind of taking a step back from that particular and just analyzing what's what's the business case, what's my situation, what is the business asking for that we really need to be uh, better at or good at. And so we can scale out. I mean, if you look out, it's probably going to be pretty choppy for the next year or so at least in terms of hiring demand. I think some, some industries are coming out of this very strong and the de demand for talent is still there. Others are, you know, let's say in the manufacturing, industrial sector, hospitality, it's just going to be really choppy. So um, I think just taking a step back and saying, where's, 
do I want an, an RPO solution to be an extension of my team? And am I capable of onboarding an outsourced partner effectively into the organization? So oftentimes it's just around self-awareness and self-reflection before getting into contracts and pricing. Does that mean you're inclined to do more of a try before you buy relationship, meaning, you know, kind of set up a short-term relationship just to make sure that everybody loves each other before you ask for a three-year contract? <laughs> yeah, I I mean, we we encourage it. I think pilots to your the earlier question around agile, I think it really lends itself in particular areas to do a project uh, project-based RPO. It lowers the risk of potentially uh, a purchasing or buying an RPO solution, and you really get to know what it feels like uh, to have a, a solutions partner to be a, be a part of your your talent acquisition. So I often encourage it, not only for the client but also for us. Sometimes organizationally, an RPO solution, honestly, an RPO provider, it's just not a good. It's just not a good fit for some organizations, in, in, in my opinion. Right. And so I think it's a good way to dip your toe in the water. I think that's right. Corey, John, anything to add to that? Contracts and pricing, what's been the difference in 2020? We're, we haven't seen that big of an inflection in pricing per se. Um, but I would say, you know, over the last, and I'll just use maybe ten, the last 10 years, incrementally, RPO pricing has not increased that much you know, as a percentage of salary or a cost per hire, you know, a lot of it's been commoditized in RPO and that, you know, early on the value proposition was essentially your mess for less, right? It was lower, you know, we take it on, we own it, we can do it for lower cost, which, you know, in the high volume game or those companies that needed a lot of employees that maybe, you know, were lower complexity positions, yes, the, the prices were really driven down. And so, you know, I would say that in areas that are that are of higher complexity and the need is very mission critical, we're seeing companies realize the value of the the cost or the investment into the program versus maybe, you know, five or, or 10 years ago, they, they may not have seen that. They may have lumped that into, well, recruiting's recruiting. And what I'm comparing it with was the old, you know, 20 to 25% contingency or the contract recruiter model. And, and that was just it. That was, you're, you were only as good as your last hire. With RPO, now we're building out programs that endure and sustain themselves for, for a long time. We make your teams smarter. We make your companies better. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I think I would agree with both what Jason and Corey said there. I mean, I think the other thing is when we touched on this a little bit earlier, starting to, I think you mentioned something about the business case, building a business case. And I think it really is something where starting to have more conversation and start to measure more of that revenue return, the return they're going to get on this investment that they're putting in. I'm, I'm assuming and guessing most of the people watching this today are talent acquisition supporters. I think so many times it's presented to leadership as an expense. And I think leadership want information to make the best decision, but they don't have that information to make the decision with it. So if you're coming with a business case saying, hey, if you can shorten your time to fill by this, and it's going to increase your revenue by this, or even just the morale of the employees is going to improve by this, if you, you know, and, and you can go through a bunch of different data points, the performance of new hires and so forth. I mean, what's the difference between getting a top performer versus getting an average performer, or even a poor performer? I mean, it can't even be counted. I mean, the, the return on that from what they pay to fill jobs is is not even close. I mean, if you start to measure it that way. So I think it's really starting to build 
the business case around that. So leaders can look at this and make decisions around that, like they do other decisions within the business versus, okay, what's the expense? For yeah. This? Well, uh, tying it back to the agile methodology, I don't know that agile promises cheaper, but it does promise better quality and faster. And so maybe that's the outcome, the old adage, good, fast, cheap, pick two. And, you know, right. if you want it good and fast, it may not be cheap. On the other hand, price does matter. But here's the rub. If uh, if I'm not mistaken, most people don't know what their cost per hire is. So they come to an RPO and they say, save me money. And you say to them, well, what does it cost you today? And they say, um, let me get back to you on that. So uh, what, what do you guys do in that case? How do you make the ROI work when an organization has an unclear sense of what it really costs them to hire? We have to establish a, a reference point that people subscribe to or people can can just look at a number and agree to at some point. The other part, Aaron, that is interesting that that drives behavior within an RPO arrangement is typically where that budget is coming from. You know, so to give you an example, is it a corporate budget that is managed by human resources or TA or that services the whole company through a corporate budget? And if so, then in a lot of cases where you have had some sort of existing provider, existing recruiting engine in the organization um, that has not been delivering and you're looking at you know, improving that, then the RPO provider gets into this mode to where they, ha- they have to sell, you know, we have to go out and sell our, our credentials to the business units um, throughout the business. Now, in other cases, it's funded by the business and there's a percentage of, you know, the cost or the investment into an RPO provider is shared amongst the BUs and, and you get more of an equalized, equalized outcome there when it comes to, you know, budgets. Yeah, I think there's times with that that, that Corey was mentioning that there's hidden costs there that's not always seen, especially if you look at centralized recruiting budget versus decentralized, it's out through the business and there's the, when it's de- especially when it's decentralized, you, know, you can ask, you know, you try to gather that information to build the case, look what their cost per hire is. And then are they taking into account the money that's being spent with agencies that are getting paid out of each of the different business units or if it's decentralized out there as well? So sometimes it is digging pretty deep to really try and find out where all their expenses are, because a lot of times they'll look surface level and they could be missing 50 percent of the cost that they truly have. Um, I, I agree. I think the, 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 the one that Corey mentioned around uh, allocating uh, talent acquisition to the business, I think it's um, really allows them to be a consumer of talent acquisition services and the true cost um, and what it means. I think to your first question about how do you, how do you build the business case? I think we have so many client experiences that we can reference upon that oftentimes we can do a back of the envelope calculation of, you know, based on the number of hires that they have, the levels of the hires and quickly come up with a, with a, whether it's a cost per hire or a time to fill um, based on our own experiences, industry benchmarks, and oftentimes quickly fit into, eh, you know, uh, spitballing, if you will, what, what what the potential ROI is and do that pretty quickly. So that's often where we start because we've seen so many different scenarios and client situations, whether it's high volume or corporate or specialty or I, you know, IT hiring, that oftentimes we can come up quickly come up with a business case that's like, yeah, 
I don't know if we're going to save you any money. And quite frankly, I don't think you're investing enough in talent acquisition for you to really have, you know, a significant brand and, and attract people. You actually need to invest more. And, and sometimes that is. But I think your point around, you know, oftentimes we say better, cheaper, faster, scale, compliance or risk. Those are kind of the major buckets in terms of the value proposition and um, of, of RPO. And let's start to let's start to figure the talk track out. So how you can build the story internally about what the what the true ROI the, is going to be. The other thing to consider too is that there is no faster way to hire than having a pool of candidates that are already interested, qualified and available that you've identified and you've engaged with at some point. Um, so the question here is, how much investment are, are we willing to put out there to build this talent community or build this talent pool ahead of demand? And so, you know, we as RPO providers have to put out a strategy that says, okay, you know, we realize that we can't heavily invest in front of a need that we may or may not have. But what we can do is come to an agreement on certain job families or maybe elevated positions or, you know, high turnover positions that we're going to make a concerted effort and some sort of investment in uh, identifying a, a talent community ahead of the demand. All right. And kind of already answered what I was going to make my final question regarding the RPO as advisor. So because I just heard all three of you give great advice in terms of how to think about the ROI, think about the solution, think about selling it internally. I'll just add one piece to that and then ask our final question. We've only got a couple of minutes left. So last call for questions from the listeners. We want to make sure that we give you an opportunity to jump in if you have something you'd like for the panel to answer. But my little piece of free advice is ANSI Standards, the American National Standard Institute, which has an online tool that you can use to figure out your cost per hire. It is specifically a cost per hire calculator. It's a fantastic tool. I use it all the time. And to, exactly to the points that were already raised, you may not be including very critical parts of your cost in your calculation. And so this actually provides a standard for that. And then you can uh, stand up straight with your CEO and tell them exactly what it costs on the basis of some external standards. We'll leave the, the uh, cost per hire ROI discussion, but I'd love a quick lightning round. 2020 is almost over. Thank goodness. I think we all have been looking forward to the light at the end of the tunnel here and hoping for better things in the new year. What's your prediction for RPO, hiring, agile methodology, and any and all of the above? What's your prediction for 2021? My prediction is that, you know, number one, people are pretty resilient. And, you know, the American people, especially when we're talking about North America, we want something better than what we've seen over, over the last six months, irregardless. And, and I truly believe that um, as businesses come back, people want to work, they want to be engaged, they want to grow, um, they want what's best for themselves and their family, which is going to naturally create more opportunity and more jobs. And we have to be ready for that. We're seeing an uptick in interest in, in folks reaching out to us, not only as uh, for, for advice, um, but to solve real bona fide problems that, um, that are created. And, and they're, create, they're, they're good problems to have because it's, it's growth, it's opportunity. But yet, you know, we just have to continue to get better at working with our clients and, and as a whole, RPO as a whole 
dis- disseminating our value proposition. And it's there, you know. So my advice, my prediction is that we're going to continue to grow. It may be a little rough around the elections. I think coming into Q1, Q2 of next year, probably Q2, we're going to see some ramp- rampant growth. And um, reach out to your Reach out to the RPOA for advice. Um, group of good people that have a lot of miles underneath us, and we've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. Absolutely. Okay, Jason, John, lightning round, quick, go. I would just say, I mean, it's really, this is, um, we're going to come out of this. I mean, we're already seeing that. I mean, we're going to come out of this, and we're going to come out stronger than we went into it. And I would say the one thing, I think when I look at work and education, I think there's major changes made that take, took place over the last three to six months. I, I talked to clients, and, and the virtual workforce, I think a lot of them were really surprised at how they were able to make that transition and do it pretty quickly and pretty effectively. And I do think that that is going to be something driving into the end of this year and into next year is going to start to change. Things. We're going to have to like recruiting and even how companies work and how they're hiring and so forth. I think there, there are going to be changes, I think, for the positive. So I think that's going to impact kind of the future. Okay. Here. So I'm hearing resiliency. I'm hearing optimism. Jason, what would be your prediction? I mean, I'm hugely bullish. We just had a conversation this morning with our team about Q4 and where it's stacking up. And we may get the Q4 is looking tremendously strong. And I, I, I predict it's going to carry into, into, into 2021. Our, our cli- we have a client in the hospitality industry, which has been punched in the gut. Uh, uh, you know, I'm similar to the airline industry, but there's, you know, they're, they're doubling down on some investments and being opportunistic. And we're seeing a massive spike coming out of it, which, which for the past six months has been at zero. There's lights at the end of the tunnel. There's clients that aren't really doing much of anything. So we've seen completely drop down to zero. But overall, I'm very optimistic. The other thing that we're looking, which is around the diverse talent, is well, I'm looking at my bench of delivery um, folks our bench is really strong. Um, how do we move them up to be managers and developing that talent? So we're really looking internally. We've got some tremendous people internally, but we need to give them more experiences, more diverse experiences and spreading them across different clients um, so they can continue to, to develop and add, add value to our organization. Right. Well, I am encouraged listening to the three of you. So thank you very much for your perspective, commitment to agility, to carrying forward the uh, great business of RPO. And uh, again, thanks to our listeners for joining us. Hopefully you have benefited from this as well. Continue to connect with the RPOA for learning and encouragement and resources around your RPO journey. Thanks, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Big Fish in the Talent Pool. This podcast is independently produced in collaboration with ERE.net, and we would love to hear your feedback. You can email Aaron directly at E-P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N at people-results.com. You can also follow Aaron on Twitter at Aaron McPeterson, connect with her on LinkedIn, and learn more about her practice at people-results.com.